We are honored to have Dr. Patricia American Norby as the 2021 Wyeth Lecturer in American Art. Dr. Norby is Associate Curator of Native American Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. The Wyeth Foundation for American Art programs, including lectures, conferences, and symposia, have been hosted by the Center for Advanced Study in the Visual Arts since 2003 and are made possible through the generous support of the Wyeth Foundation for American Art. Participants are chosen on the basis of their outstanding contributions of the study of and scholarship on American art. Dr. Norby has written numerous essays, organized myriad exhibitions, and is a highly sought after speaker on Native American art and culture. Dr. Norby's National Museum of the American Indian exhibition, Stretching the Canvas, Eight Decades of Native Painting, was hailed as expanding our understanding of American modernism and is regarded as an important lesson for institutions that exclude the work of indigenous artists. In September 2020, Dr. Norby made history with her appointment at the Met, becoming the first full-time curator of Native American art in the museum's 150-year history. Since then, Dr. Norby has broken institutional barriers by engaging bold, refreshing, community-centered approaches that foreground Indigenous voices and experiences within the Met's collections, exhibitions, and programs. Her curatorial vision and strategies have been celebrated by The New York Times, PBS, Forbes Magazine, and Bitch Media. And she has been described as a new voice in an old institution by the Santa Fe New Mexicans Arts and Culture magazine Pasta Tiempo. Dr. Norby previously served as Senior Executive and Assistant Director of the National Museum of the American Indian New York and is Director of the Darcy McNichol Center for American Indian and Indigenous Studies at the Newbury in Chicago. Dr. Norby earned a PhD in American Studies at the University of Minnesota and an MFA in Printmaking and Photography from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Norby's lecture, titled Prioritizing Indigenous Communities and Voices, Curating in This Time, emanates from her forthcoming book, Water, Bones, and Bombs, and her curatorial practices. She will share with us her vision and approaches to collecting, presenting, and interpreting Native American art at the Met and beyond. Without further ado, here is Dr. Patricia American Norby. Nadi Hamashak. Hello. I'm Patricia Marco Norby, Associate Curator of Native American Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. I would like to acknowledge that as Pudapacha woman, I'm a guest here in the homelands of the Anacostan and Piscataway nations. I'm delighted to present for the Wyeth Lecture in American Art. I'm honored to be the first Pudapacha person to speak in this lecture series and to be included among such esteemed colleagues who have previously shared their outstanding scholarship and interpretations of American art. I would like to thank Center's Dean Stephen Nelson for this opportunity. I would also like to express my sincere gratitude to Center's Associate Dean Peter Lukart, Communications Coordinator Jen Rakowski, and Natalie Mesa for their diligence, patience, and support while making this moment happen during a very challenging time 
in the midst of a pandemic. Also, to the National Gallery of Art Director Kaywin Feldman, as well as the entire center team, your generous hospitality and care are sincerely appreciated. It seems fitting to present here in Washington, D.C. at the National Gallery of Art, an institution with a strong dedication to, as well as complex history with American art. This city holds special meaning for me both personally and professionally. It was here nearly 20 years ago that I began my museum career, just a few blocks away, at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian in 2003. At that time, museum construction on the National Mall had recently broke ground, and I had the honor of working under leadership of NMEI's founding director, Rick West Jr., alongside distinguished mentors and colleagues, including Truman Lowe, Paul Chet Smith, Jolene Rickard, Gabby Tayak, Jim Pepper Henry, Rebecca Troutman, and Bruce Bernstein. As a young member of NMAI's early curatorial research team, I contributed to the inaugural Our Lives exhibition and shadowed curators and other staff in the early development of the George Morrison and Alan Hauser exhibition. What I remember about that time was the palpable excitement of being surrounded by so many Indigenous colleagues from diverse sovereign nations who, together, shared in the challenging but rewarding work of presenting Native American art, culture, and history from an Indigenous perspective. Now, 20 years later, a similar moment is building as numerous museums, cultural and educational institutions, are undergoing a major transformation of historical proportion. At the international level, many museums are publicly acknowledging their own colonial legacies and reckoning with long-term institutional practices that have created painful barriers and long separations between collections and source communities. Sovereign nations and indigenous peoples who do not view museum collections and cultural materials as objects or things but as ancestors, relatives, and representatives of kinship systems and ties to homelands. But this work is not new. Local tribal museums and cultural centers on reservations and tribal lands, as well as larger culturally specific institutions such as NMAI and the Newberry's Darcy McNichol Center for American Indian and Indigenous Studies have been doing this work for decades and it is important to acknowledge their critical contributions to the institutional shifts we are now witnessing. For this talk, I will share about my long-term scholarly work and its relevance to my curatorial approach, as well as current and upcoming changes at the Met, including Art of Native America, the Charles and Valerie Diker Collection, which debuted in 2018 and is now officially a permanent installation in the American Wings Irving and Joyce Wolf Gallery. These important, timely changes both affirm and foreground Indigenous experiences and voices in the Met's exhibitions, collections, and programs, and are grounded by collaboration and relationship building with source communities, a practice which has always been a priority in my museum leadership, curatorial work, and fine art scholarship. For instance, without the voices of Pueblo, Abiqueño, and Hispano communities of Northern New Mexico, my current book project, Water, Bones, and Bombs, 20th Century Art and Environmental Conflicts in the Southwest, would not be possible. 
Forthcoming through the University of Nebraska's Money West series, the book draws directly from my dissertation, Visual Violence in the Land of Enchantment, which was published online in 2013 by the University of Minnesota and centers on 20th century American Indian and American art of the Southwest and its connections to environmental conflicts and natural resource appropriations. In my work, I examine the paintings of Tonita Pena from San Altifonso and Cochiti Pueblos, Georgia O'Keeffe, and Helen Hardin from Santa Clara Pueblo, three artists who lived and worked in the northern Rio Grande and Chama River Valleys in northern New Mexico, and who had very distinct personal, professional, and aesthetic relationships with the land and landscapes of the northern Rio Grande region. In my work, I investigate Tonita Pena's watercolor paintings and their material connection to 20th century water politics in northern New Mexico. I also expose connections between the painter and printmaker, Helen Hardin's studio practices, and art material and environmental toxin exposure related to nuclear weapons production at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Finally, I argue that American art icon Georgia O'Keeffe's Southwest images visually manifest intercultural tensions and are more politically charged than modern art histories and O'Keeffe biographies portray. My research approach is grounded by over a decade of building respectful, collaborative relationships with local communities in northern New Mexico, as well as extensive research in American Indian law, New Mexican land grants, legal transcripts, local correspondence, and petitions to spotlight direct connections between O'Keeffe's Abiquiu landscape paintings and natural resource struggles. I underscore the politics behind modern American art narratives and demonstrate how 20th century American aesthetics, specifically in the Southwest, elided American Indian and Hispano voices and perspectives and their contributions to modern American art. Chapter one focuses on the professional experiences and paintings of Tonita Pena, who is often referred to as the grandmother of Pueblo watercolor paintings. During the early 1920s, under the shadow of land and water conflicts between Indian and non-Indian communities, the career of Tonita Pena took flight, and she became one of the most well-known American Indian painters of the early 20th century. In addition to this high regard, her paintings spoke to something deeper, they visually and materially embodied expressions of her resistance to early 20th century modes of non-Indian colonization and encroachment, most specifically land and water appropriation. The Euro-American introduction of watercolor painting for market, an independent art medium, to Pueblo communities demonstrates intercultural differences and clashing values. The Northern Rio Grande Valley is a place where water is not only scarce, but is also sacred to American Indian and Hispano communities. In this semi-arid climate, water politics and the local anxieties associated with the gradual disconnect between water, community identities, assertions of sovereignty, and intergenerational survival have prevailed. The historical and material contradictions behind the commoditization of this precious natural resource, specifically for economic and political agendas, becomes clear through an examination of Tonita Pena's career, which temporally aligned with water disputes happening throughout northern New Mexico during the arc of her success. Chapter three of my book examines the life and art of Helen Hardin and the intersection between nuclear weapons production and Pueblo Indian art. 
two industries that have permanently affected the health and well-being of northern Rio Grande's indigenous communities. Hardin, Sasewea, Little Standing Spruce, was an internationally celebrated acrylic painter and printmaker who died of breast cancer at age 41. Capo Wingue, Santa Clara Pueblo, Hardin's ancestral community is located downstream from Los Alamos National Laboratories, the creation site of the Manhattan Project. Born in 1943, Hardin belongs to generations of Pueblo and other New Mexican citizens who were unknowingly exposed to radiation and other pollution caused by unregulated toxic waste dumping at Los Alamos in the decades following World War II. In context with this environmental destruction, I examined Hardin's art-making techniques, which further exposed her body to additional hazardous materials. Throughout her career, Hardin became increasingly aware of the health issues her art materials and studio practices presented. She was not alone. In response to numerous occupational dangers that many artists faced, federal regulations under the Occupational Safety and Health Act, or OSHA, were enacted to manage art material hazards and unsafe practices in professional art studios. Hardin's story demonstrates the racialized and gendered art world that many American Indian women regularly contended with during the 20th century, a time when many women struggled for professional equity and recognition while making art in their homes and on their kitchen tables, unsuitable environments that were hazardous to their physical health and safety. Despite the numerous professional and personal challenges she faced, Hardin excelled as a technically sophisticated artist. Her award-winning aesthetically complex imagery included multi-layered animals, human figures, and abstract ceremonial references, which were exhibited locally and internationally. Hardin's paintings and prints broke new ground for Pueblo artists who were attempting to cast off the aesthetic restrictions imposed upon American Indian art during the early 20th century. Her precarious art-making practices, including her long-term use of an oral atomizer and airbrush machine to build up her surfaces, expose connections between art, the environment, and the body. Chapter two of my book centers on the ancient Tewa Pueblo Abishu, or Abiquiu, New Mexico, and local Abiqueño families and their perspectives of the American modern artist, Georgia O'Keeffe. Abiquiu, New Mexico is located on the northern path of the historic Spanish Trail along the Rio Chama River, approximately 25 miles north of Santa Fe, and was a very active military and trading center during Spanish, Mexican, and U.S. occupational periods. In 1850, a southern Ute agency was established at Abiquiu and served both the Ute and Hickory Apache until 1882. In 1945, when the population of Abiquiu was around 600, the American painter Georgia O'Keeffe moved there permanently and purchased under questionable circumstances La Tapia, the home of General Jose Maria Chavez, a notorious land speculator and Indian slave trader who worked as a government official to Spain, Mexico, and the United States. Between 1945 and 49, O'Keeffe and her friend and professional associate Maria Chabot reconstructed La Tapia, which was once used as an Indian prison. According to correspondence between O'Keefe and Chabot from March 1946, one of the prison cells or ute room located in the house was originally windowless with a large wooden door that bolted from the outside. 
During renovations, a window was installed in the cell's outer wall. The space was then renamed the Indian Room and included a dining area. Local citizens hinted to the artist and to Chabot about the property's dark history. At the time of O'Keeffe's purchase, sections of the neglected adobe were crumbling and the yard was being used communally for gardening and as a livestock shelter, an approach which respected local cultural protocols. According to Abikenyo perspectives, this ongoing use of the land secured the three acres as Abikenyo communal property and honored the Apihu land grants of 1754 and 1894. Despite this legal history, for nearly a decade, O'Keefe diligently negotiated a buy through the local Catholic Church, a purchase which involved a $4,000 tax-deductible gift to the Archbishop Edwin Byrne, and dismissed the original land grants. O'Keefe, however, would eventually have to face the citizens of Abiquiu, people who she initially offended and who served on the local land-grant board. The artist had to negotiate for water use, rock for her stone wall, and for the legal deed of her property line. These early, very awkward interactions would set the tone between O'Keefe and many of her Abiquiu neighbors for decades. Today, Abiquenus convey a sense of dignity when sharing their own American Indian and Hispano histories. Local families will tell you that their Henisado ancestors lived and died in this desert long before O'Keefe arrived. Abiquenu citizens identify as the descendants of the original Henisado community, or children of the Pueblo, Diné, Apache, Ute, Pawnee, and Comanche captives and slaves who were purchased by Spanish and Mexican elite. Abiquiu was federally recognized as an Indian Pueblo until the early 20th century when it gave up this status to become a village. Despite the long-term presence of Abiquiu's indigenous communities, American art historians and O'Keefe fans have insistently referred to the Abiquiu region as O'Keefe country. The popular O'Keefe myth of the isolated desert sage is a myth that has obscured Abiquiu contributions to O'Keefe's success throughout the entire second half of her career. There is no question that 20th century American art historians depended upon limited interpretations that both assigned meaning to and dismissed specific historical, cultural, and racial information in promotion of American aesthetics and nationalist agendas. In Abiquiu, key to these messages was the visual conveyance of an empty land, land that was free for the taking. Land that is waiting for someone to just walk in and appreciate its beauty, its wonderful emptiness, and natural aesthetics. These messages are not limited to landscapes. They play out every day in art and images, on tourist paraphernalia, travel guides, coffee table books, t-shirts, and postcards. This postcard, for example, which is circulated in local tour shops in northern New Mexico, disseminates one of O'Keeffe's most famous and, I believe, most problematic quotes regarding Tziping, Cerro Pedernal, or Pedernal Mountain, a sacred natural landmark for northern New Mexico's indigenous communities. In 1977, to Newsday writer Amy Wallach, O'Keeffe made one of her most celebrated remarks. It's my private mountain, she stated. God told me if I painted it often enough, I could have it. 
The repeated dissemination of this statement in context with O'Keeffe's empty landscape paintings helped perpetuate Georgia O'Keeffe the myth, the myth of the isolated American art icon. 20th century magazine articles focused on O'Keeffe's life and work and featured striking images of the artist dressed dramatically, bone collecting, or wandering about an empty desert. These publications included bold reproductions of O'Keeffe's paintings alongside moody portraits of the artist. This visual marriage of O'Keeffe's empty desertscapes, along with the skillfully composed black and white portraits of her, understored a careful narration of the artist alone in northern New Mexico. Haunting photographs of the artist strolling about Abiquiu emphasized O'Keeffe's physical and spiritual connection to the desert lands and visually emphasized the vacancy of Abiquiu. In interviews, the artist played up the desert's wonderful emptiness, which she claimed to have discovered in 1912 while teaching in Amarillo, Texas. Another quote puts a finer point on her attitude. In Periodato's 1977 documentary, Portrait of an Artist, Georgia O'Keeffe, the artist recalled her initial encounter with the northern New Mexican landscape. On camera, in a sweet lilting voice, she stated, When I got to New Mexico, that was mine. In this image is the 9,868-foot flat-top mountain Sipping or Cerro Pedernal, which has always been sacred to northern New Mexico's indigenous communities. Sipping's history dates back centuries. Artifacts found on its slopes have been dated to 7,000 BC. Between 1936 and 58, O'Keeffe's claims to Sipping were documented in over 29 different paintings of the mountain. Her images depicted the mountain during all seasons from numerous perspectives. So prevailing were the artist's verbal and visual claims to this landmark that between 1979 and 84, the National Park and U.S. Forest Services considered honoring the artist by renaming Sipping O'Keeffe Mountain. Local responses to the suggestion of renaming Cerro Pedernal were powerful. Abiquiu citizens protested by circulating a petition. Some wrote letters speaking out against this proposal. In March 1988, an article entitled O'Keeffe Peak, We Hope Not, appeared in the History Society of New Mexico's La Cronica de Nuevo México and challenged the need of mostly Euro-American non-locals to immortalize the artist by renaming the natural landmark. More community members banded together to form Los Vecinos del Cerro Pedernal, the neighbors of Pedernal Mountain. Statements from Los Vecinos affirmed their historical and spiritual connection to the mountain and also critiqued O'Keefe and her fans. They wrote, Long, long time ago, El Cerro Pedernal provided the resources for us to survive. It gave us flint so that we could have tools. It also provided us with water and land so that we could farm. The canyon lands that surround its base offered us protection, but more importantly, it gave us a sanctuary, a place of refuge so that we could seek our own God. I share about my scholarship with you because Indigenous perspectives have greatly impacted my curatorial vision, my commitment to Native American and Indigenous sovereignty, and my goals of presenting Native American art and its kinship ties to local environments and Indigenous homelands, 
all values that are reflected in the current and ongoing changes at the Met and in the American Wing's approach to presenting Native American art. In addition to foregrounding Indigenous voices and perspectives in the American Wing, collaborative efforts are now underway across multiple museum departments to appropriately highlight Native American art while respecting culturally specific protocols, aesthetic expressions, and sovereignty. These are important values that allow for the presentation of this art along an aesthetic continuum, according to community perspectives, while creating a welcoming space for Indigenous visitors. One collaboration underway at the Met is the inclusion of multiple Indigenous designers in the Costume Institute's 2022 rotation of In America, a Lexicon of Fashion, curated by Andrew Bolton. This major exhibition coincides with the Costume Institute's 75th anniversary, as well as the annual Met Gala. It celebrates the creativity and originality of diverse designers and cultural identities expressed in their distinct works. This fashion reappraisal not only presents American fashion as diverse and multifaceted, it also is grounded by unique cultural and emotional resonances, as well as historical narratives. Consider, for instance, the aesthetic continuities and expressions of sovereignty in conversation between this Lenape Delaware man's coat from 1840, made of hide, cloth, glass beads, and this contemporary hand-beaded bandolier bag by Lenape Delaware artist Joe Baker created in 1997, made from linen, satin, glass beads, and wool, along with this turtle ensemble or dress created in 1948, by Lenape Delaware textile designer and artist Thomas Dorsey and renowned fashion designer Gilbert Adrian. The velvety tanned fringed deerskin on this man's coat and the intricately balanced floral beadwork of the coat and contemporary bandolier bag, as well as the Turtle Island imagery of the dress, all speak to exceptional artistry, design, and technical skill while affirming Lenape cultural identity and sovereignty. Historically, sparkling bodily adornment and accoutrement has signified spiritual and physical health for the Lenape. According to artist Joe Baker, by bringing these aesthetic expressions into a contemporary context, each item becomes a type of diary, a material record of the maker's thoughts and good intentions. In this way, they hold memories and meaningful stories, carrying them into the world. Also included in the In America Fashion Exhibition is this Cascade Ensemble constructed with Pendleton blankets styled after Hudson Bay Company blankets by the Indigenous designer Corina Emmerich, who is of Palayup descent. About this work, Emmerich states that her use of wool materials inspired by the Hudson Bay Company refers to environmental sustainability, as well as the company's historically contentious relationship with indigenous communities and to her own ancestral history of working for the company during the 19th century. Another collaborative effort taking place between the Met's American Wing and Modern and Contemporary Department is the exhibition and ongoing acquisition of modern through contemporary native artists. Currently on view in Gallery 924 of the Modern and Contemporary Wing are two paintings by contemporary artists, Jean Quictacy Smith, enrolled Salish member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes of the Flathead Reservation, 
and Kay Walking Stick, who is Cherokee. Curated by Randall Griffey, the painting's August Encampment, using oil on canvas, and Genesis Violent Garden, created in 1981 with acrylics, wax, broken seashells, and metallic particles on canvas, speak to family memories, connections to homelands, Indian politics, and creation stories, as well as settler encroachments, violence, and survival. The installation of these two powerful works by two prominent long-standing leaders of Native American art demonstrates active, stronger representation of contemporary Native American artists and Native American women at the Met. Recent exhibitions in the American Wing that involved collaborations with source communities, including individual artists, scholars, and community members, following their lead on how to best foreground Indigenous voices and experiences were the Carl Bodmer North American Portraits, on view from April 5th to July 25th, 2021, and Jules Tavernier and the Elam Pomo, on view from August 16th to November 28th, 2021. Each project included numerous community members as co-curators, advisors, consultants, and authors in order to represent 19th century paintings in context with the intergenerational histories, personal lives, and family legacies of contemporary Native American communities who hold direct ties to the featured artworks. Collaborative leadership for these projects was provided by Met curators Thayer Tolls, Betsy Kornhauser, and Shannon Vittoria, along with Annika Johnson from the Jocelyn Art Museum. I'm thrilled to share about two new acquisitions that will be featured in 2022 in the American Wings Wolf North Gallery in an upcoming exhibition that contemplates intimate connections with and memories of water. They are Truman Lowe's 1993 sculpture, Feather Canoe, made of willow, copper, and feathers, and Cara Romero's 2015 archival photograph, Water Memory, both works portray water as a place of sanctuary, emergence, and regeneration. Each work also speaks to the urgent environmental challenges currently faced by numerous indigenous communities to protect shrinking homelands and freshwater sources. The quiet potency of these two works intentionally draws in viewers to look closely and reflect upon contextual, cultural, and personal meanings. As Associate Curator of Native American Art, my ongoing efforts to foreground Indigenous voices reaches beyond gallery spaces. At this time, the museum is hosting virtual source community visits to our collections to help build positive collaborative relationships and discuss culturally sensitive and NAGPRA relevant issues. Also ongoing are our educational and public programs featuring Native American artists, scholars, and community experts that highlight current issues in Indian country. And I'm excited to share that our new Art of Native America audio guide, created in collaboration with the Met's digital team, includes the voices of community members, artists, and celebrities, including the award-winning Cree and Métis actor of film and television, Tantu Cardinal, as narrator. As I complete my first year at the Met, which began during a worldwide pandemic, I am proud to say there has been much change and growth. But as we all 
now know well, change is not always easy, particularly at a 150-year-old institution where many of these practices are new. My time at the Met has provided me the opportunity to assess the specific needs of the institution and to begin developing guidelines for issues regarding NAGPRA, collections care, and exhibition protocol relevant to the Indian Arts and Crafts Act of 1990. These important measures help my colleagues and I in our efforts to provide a welcoming space for Native American and Indigenous communities. Returning to my opening point, the current wave of change within the Indigenous art and museum world is not sudden. In fact, for many Indigenous peoples, it has been long coming. Put more bluntly, for some of us, it is long overdue. At this time, our world is experiencing a gradual reawakening after more than a year of isolation, illness, violence, and devastation. Across North America, Indigenous communities have experienced the direct impact of, and witnessed, historically tragic events. Despite incredible loss and many painful challenges, including the very necessary shutdown of reservations, pueblos, tribal lands, and private homes, as communities, Indigenous peoples have remained steadfastly connected to each other. And we use digital portals, words, and images to creatively do so. One might even say that a Native American and Indigenous communities boldly seized the moment and became a most powerful virtual presence. In the midst of the COVID pandemic, we Indigenous thinkers and workers moved forward with our creative, educational, cultural, and language programs all online. We did this out of deep love for our communities, for our younger generations, and for our elders. We did this out of deep need for connection to each other. In other words, we as Indigenous peoples did what we have always done. We relied on our communities and on one another. We did this because deep down we know and have always known that without each other, we will not survive. Sovereign Indigenous nations share a common core value of community. The current hiring stream of Indigenous museum practitioners is encouraging and represents multi-generations of established voices, as well as fresh perspectives in the Indigenous art and museum fields that celebrate the rich cultural and artistic diversity of our sovereign communities. As we will see, some curatorial approaches will be familiar and comforting. Others will challenge us to think anew as we confront our own internal biases and need for growth while embracing more inclusive visions for our collective futures. As museum professionals, in this moment of cultural, political, and institutional reckoning, Native American and Indigenous peoples understand that we must rely upon, support, and protect each other along with our ancestral items and knowledge systems. Indigenous art and creative practices have always offered diverse and innovative ways of knowing and understanding the world, unique expressions that are visually and materially realized in established aesthetic systems and community protocols. For our communities, creative production and aesthetics are deeply rooted in the places and regions to which we belong and to all that is good about who we are as Indigenous peoples. 
This is one way we connect. Our work as museum practitioners reminds us that we carry the hopes and visions of our ancestors, but also that we must engage in ongoing dialogues, cross-cultural collaborations, and continual recentering of our self-determinations and creative practices. We must also question, internalize settler colonial limitations, borders, and boundaries about who we are and how we want to move forward collectively. In my long-term vision, I will not be satisfied until museums at the international level have Native American and Indigenous curators in all wings of their institutions as curators of modern art, contemporary art, European paintings and sculpture, Asian art, African and Latin American art, photography, design, drawings, prints, the list goes on. In my opinion, it is not enough to simply install our artworks into these spaces as stand-ins for Native peoples. We must have active representation in these spaces as well. As diverse and varied as our worldviews may be, one thing the current institutional transformations have powerfully demonstrated is, as Indigenous peoples and communities, we have never given up and we never will. To close, I would like to read the American Wing's new in-gallery land and water statement installed in March of 2021, which demonstrates the Met's institutional commitment to respectfully recognizing the original Native American and indigenous communities and their kinship ties to the lands and waters of the New York region and beyond. It reads, the American Wing acknowledges the sovereign Native American and indigenous communities dispossessed from the lands and waters of this region. We affirm our intentions for ongoing relationships with contemporary Native American and indigenous artists and the original communities whose ancestral and aesthetic items we care for. We understand that these items, vibrant expressions of Native sovereignty, identity, and connections to community and family embody intergenerational and environmental knowledge, including origin stories, languages, songs, dances, and ties to homelands. We commit to pursuing continuous collaborations with indigenous communities and present Native American art in a manner that is inclusive of indigenous perspectives, involves guidance from source communities, and create space for respectful listening and thoughtful dialogue. We will work to advance Indigenous experiences in the Met's exhibitions, collections, and programs. We will strengthen our awareness of historical and contemporary environmental issues in the New York region and throughout North America in order to thoughtfully reckon with our institutional legacy and its impact on the lands, waters, and original peoples of this place, which are and always will be inextricable. Thank you.